Disclaimer. Please do not email us about the historical inaccuracies we are sure to make. We are not historians. We are idiots. Anachronismo. I'm Max. I'm Noel. And I'm Jackie. We are the historical comedy podcast that brings you stories from history and then makes jokes about them. Pretty simple idea. Pretty simple people. Us. Simpletons. <laughs> Real dum-dums. This week, I'm going to be talking about the history of matches. That's right. The things that you go, and they go, and burst into flame. Ooh. And I'll be talking about Typhoid Mary. Oh, she was a real gross lady, by all accounts. She was a real person. I mean, I'm not saying she wasn't, but there's a reason she spread all those diseases to those people. Because she had typhoid to the carrier. Don't spoil it. Okay, well, that's... <laughs> I feel like that's not so much I, a spoiler. Yeah, she? I feel like typhoid Mary implies that she didn't take away typhoid and selfishly hoard it, but she gave it to all. She wasn't like someone who could miraculously cure typhoid by laying on hands. All right. And you two have been poisoned by big typhoid. Oh, yeah. yeah. Big typhoid's really changed our minds about a lot of stuff. Deep in the pockets of big typhoid. Their marketing is elaborate, and you've all fallen for it. No, I think Jackie's onto us. I think she's been seeing us taking bribes from a typhoid kingpin. Typhoid Tom. What? The mic's on. Oh, fuck. Oh, shit. Oh, balls. And Jackie's right here. Oh, oh, crap. Yeah, I oh. can see you. Oh, wizard balls. I can hear you. Rat dicks. Gross. Uh, 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 history. So, matches, right? <laughs> We're all having fun. We're all having fun with matches, right? We've, show of hands. Who here has played with matches? All right, Jackie's hand went up immediately, Noel's hand a little later, and my hand is also up. Okay, good. We're all lucky to be alive is what I am learning today. It's so fun to burn stuff. Burning stuff's fun. Watching burning stuff? Mm-hmm. Also fun. Burning men. Burning men. Burning matches. All, all good. it's fun. A dormitory? Yeah. A college dormitory? Maybe two? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Let's back up here a second, Noel. What's up? Did you burn down your college dormitories? Uh, no, that would be ridiculous. A devastating and unpredictable fire burned down my college dormitories. Noel, I'm looking up I some... do not have the strength to tear down a dormitory. No, I'm, I'm looking up some uh, some news stories from when you were in college. Tackety, tackety, tackety. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of mysterious fires from those years. Sounds like you should be talking to the fires then. Okay, hold on. Let me, let me go do that. Oh my god, his face burned off. I uh, tried to talk to a fire, and then we tried to kiss, and, well, one thing led to another. Fire babies. What is that? You have fire babies. Oh, goodness, Jack. I don't know where to start with that one. <laughs> so, matches, which make fire possible. Before we had matches, we had a lot of ways to light fires. Flint and steel, big magnifying glasses, these weird little handheld strikers that were like a flint and steel on like a pair of scissors. Oh, those are my favorites. Yeah. But it was all a real pain in the ass. So... The history of Western matches is fairly recent, but the earliest mention of matches at all is from old Chinese texts. So the earliest mention of matches is from the 1366 text, the Cho Keng Lu, which describes small sticks of pine wood impregnated with sulfur, which were used by, and I quote, impoverished court ladies in 577 CE. Another text, 
The Records of the Unworldly and the Strange by the Chinese author Tao Gu also notes, If there occurs an emergency at night, it may take some time to make a light to light a lamp. But an ingenious man devised the system of impregnating little sticks of pine wood with sulfur and storing them ready for use. At the slightest touch of fire, they burst into flame. One gets a little flame, like an ear of corn. This marvelous thing was formerly called a light-bringing slave, but afterward, when it became an article of commerce, its name was changed to Fire Inch Stick. Oh, I like that. Also one of the earliest examples of marketing. So I, I have a question. Why, in that first instance, was it known to only be owned by impoverished women? Probably because they were quite dangerous to use. I'm not seeing the connection to impoverished women. I'm not either, but that's what the quotation was. That's okay. what I was able to dig up. Okay. Yeah. Also, I'm confused about the size, because it was, what was the second one? Fire inch? A fire inch stick. Fire inch stick, but also the size of an ear of corn? One gets a little flame like an ear of corn, like shaped like an ear of shaped corn. Shaped like an ear of corn. Yeah, like a beautiful little ear of corn. A little baby corn. <laughs> yeah, like a little baby corn. You know, the kind of baby corns you might use to throw into a lantern and light it up. Uh, so in the Western world, the earliest things that we might call matches uh, were invented in 1805 by Jean Chancel. The, the head of the match consisted of a mixture of potassium, chlorate, sulfur, sugar, and rubber. And to ignite it, you had to dip its tip in a small asbestos bottle filled with sulfuric acid. They were very expensive to manufacture and, unsurprisingly... Very dangerous to use. So they never really caught on. But the idea of the chemical match continued to be developed, eventually leading to the Promethean match that was patented by Samuel Jones of London in 1828. The Promethean was constructed of a small glass capsule containing a chemical composition of sulfuric acid colored with indigo and coated on the exterior with potassium chlorate, which was wrapped up in rolls of paper. To ignite it, you took a pair of pliers and crushed the capsule, which mixed the chemicals and lit the whole thing. Also very expensive. Yeah, there's a lot of parts in there. A lot of, lot of <laughs> moving parts. A small glass capsule. Mm -hmm. And you have to have a pair of your own pliers, because it was not sold with pliers. That sounds actually kind of cool. I mean, dangerous and weird, but that sounds like really cool to have like a little pair of pliers when you're lighting a match. And That's interesting. I thought indigo was uh, used as a fireproof material. Like, it doesn't have a lot of applications, but it used to be used in Japan on a samurai material, and apparently it was supposed to be flame-resistant, but maybe they used something else. Anyway. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. So, other versions of the chemical match included similar matches meant for lighting cigars, which were introduced in 1849 in a shop called the Lighthouse on the Strand in London. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Very cute. That seems very indulgent. I mean, have, it was also a cigar shop. To have a cigar-specific match? Well, yes, but cigars were big business, and you wanted one that you could, you know, use for that. I don't know. I'm not saying it's not economically sensible. I've got my cigar matches, and I've got my glass capsule mess matches. You actually I've got had a my few sulfuric different, acid matches. <laughs> he actually had a few different types of the cigar matches. Oh, my gosh. One version that he sold was called the... Eupirian, or sometimes the Empyrean, which was popular for kitchen use, while another one meant for outdoor use was called a Vesuvian, or Flamer. But you're already in the kitchen. Don't you have a fire? Sometimes. Not always. Maybe you just need to smoke a cigar real quick. Maybe you need to light that fire so you can smoke a cigar later. The head of the Vesuvian was large and contained niter, charcoal, and wood dust, and had a phosphorus tip. The handle was large and made of hardwood so as to burn vigorously and last for a while. 
Some some matches even had glass stems. So you had the whole potassium thing, it was on a glass stem, so it was just a pure chemical reaction, so it wouldn't, like, reach your hand, and it wouldn't ignite the hardwood. And both the Vesuvians and the Prometheans had a bulb of sulfuric acid at the tip, which had to be broken to start the reaction. I wonder how many drunk people just, like, chewed on it. We'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> like, you got a cigar in one hand, you're matching the other, and you just go... <laughs> Man, these potatoes are pretty good, but that glass looks even better. I want to get my teeth around. Ah! My face! It's on fire! Yes, that was one thing that did happen. But there was The also potato a, thing or the, the, the cigar thing? The cigar thing. But there was worse things that happened from that, and I'll get to that later. So in 1832, William Newton patented the Wax Vesta in England. I also, I love the names of all these types of matches. The Prometheus stick? Yeah. That was pretty great. It's pretty good. So the wax Vesta consisted of a wax stem that embedded cotton threads. It had a tip of phosphorus. Variants known as candle matches were made by Severus and Merkel in 1836. And a, they also patented a safety version of it. Oh, oops, that's from later. I don't know how that got mixed in. So these chemical matches, uh, they never really caught on since they cost a lot to make and were incredibly dangerous. Well, pothole. Well, I'm dead. Oh, I done, I done tripped and, oh, great fire London done started. I shouldn't have come here from America with my big overalls and my floppy shoes, which continually trip me. Truly, it is difficult to be a clown from America in London. Transporting matches. I had them in my big honky nose, which is red because of all the fire inside of it. <laughs> so, yeah, they were expensive to make. They were incredibly dangerous. You couldn't really automate the process because you needed an expert chemist to mix the ratios. So in direct competition with these chemical matches were friction matches, which ignited through... Can anyone guess? Friction! Magic! <laughs> friction was right. The first friction match was made by Francois de Rosnay in 1816. His crude match was called a briquette phosphorique, and to ignite it, you had to scrape a sulfur-tipped match inside of a tube coated on the inside with phosphorus. Are we noticing a common a common uh, thing with these? A lot of sulfur and phosphorus. A lot of sulfur and phosphorus. You have to take a tube full of phosphorus and just scrape a match inside of it, which was hard to do and dangerous because you'd get a lot of a lot of uh, momentum going and the flip, oh, your match comes out and oh, you've just flicked it at someone and they're on fire now. So the first, what you'd call successful friction match was invented by in 1826 by the English chemist John Walker. Several chemical mixtures were already known, which could ignite by a sudden explosion. So up to now, most matches were boom, and then you hoped to boom, and then you hoped the like rest of the wood would catch. So it, it didn't really. Uh, it was hard to transmit that to us like a slow burning substance like wood. They were mostly for igniting things like a sudden go. While Walker was preparing a lighting mixture from one time, a match that had been dipped in that lighting mixture caught fire from accidental friction on his hearth. His hearth. His hearth? Oh. His hearth. So, yeah, he had left a, a piece of wood, like, soaking in this, and then, and it immediately caught fire. And he immediately was like, this is what we've been looking for. Hey, matchmakers, you know that hip new sound you've been looking for? Well, listen to this. <laughs> oh, my God, that's the sound of a fire. Ah, he did it. So he immediately started making friction matches from this, which consisted of wooden splints or sticks of cardboard coated with sulfur and tipped with a mixture of sulfide of antimony, chloride of potash, and gum. The treatment of sulfur helped the splints to catch fire, and the odor was improved by the addition of camphor, because up to now, all of these smelled like sulfur. Which, as we all know, 
is what farts smell like. I was going to say camphor is also not a great smell. Better than sulfur. <laughs> What's camphor smell like, Jackie? Um, I don't know. Isn't it like a medicinal? Yeah. Like they use that for uh, people with... Uh... It's part of Vicks Vapor Rub, isn't it? Camphor? So it's minty, maybe. Oh, yeah. It's used as a scent, ingredient in cooking, and embalming fluid. Gross. It also doesn't smell great. It's made from a tree. That's fun. They're all made from trees. <laughs> so the price of a box of 50 matches was one shilling. And as we might remember from previous anachronismos, a shilling is quite expensive at the time. And each box came with a piece of sandpaper, folded double, which you had to draw a match against to ignite it. Walker named these matches Congreves, in honor of the inventor and rocket pioneer Sir William Congreve. And over the course of two years, Walker sold, guess how many of these matchboxes? Ooh, so it's a shilling. Mm. Costs a lot, but they are safe. Mm. But do people even safer? Safer. Sorry. Um, I think he sold 250 boxes. I'm gonna say 249. Noel's the uh, well. You both went over, so the Noel's the closest. It was 168. He did not sell a lot. So while this match was way better than previous matches, it was still pretty dangerous. And when using one of the Congreves, flaming balls would sometimes fall to the floor, uh, which led to their ban in France and Germany. It was said that they uh, occasionally set light to dresses and curtains. Yeah, specifically those. Uh, rugs, it didn't say much about rugs, but I also imagine rugs. So Walker never patented that. I imagine dresses and curtains are a lot more, like, frilly, if that makes sense. That's true. Like Probably a mix lace. of air and fabric. Yeah, lacier. Yeah, yeah, accelerants. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, rugs are... Uh, They're pretty dense. Yeah. Nice, dense rug that you can take a good old nap on. Nice, dense rug that doesn't catch flame fast. Gee, are you tired of your rugs catching flame constantly and all of the time? Well, why not try our patented fireproof rug made of 100% asbestos? My fire is raging and I'm getting sleepy. I could use a nap on something that's not on fire. Well, why not try... Rug's bestus. The asbestos rug. The bestus rug? You know it's the asbestos because it's the bestus rug. <laughs> Call now for your asbestos rug. Guaranteed to not cause cancer. This guarantee is not actual factual. So in 1829, the Scottish inventor Sir Isaac Holden invented an improved version of Walker's match and demonstrated it to his class at Castle Academy in Reading, Berkshire. He didn't patent his invention, and he claimed that one of his pupils wrote to his father, Samuel Jones, from earlier, who then commercialized the process. And these were sold as Lucifer matches. And these early matches also had a number of problems. An initial violent reaction, an unsteady flame, an unpleasant odor and fumes. And they could also ignite explosively, sometimes throwing sparks a considerable distance. However, this name was the one that really caught on and persisted as slang up through the 20th century. In fact... You hear this slang used in the World War I song, Pack Up Your Troubles. I didn't find that song anywhere, but uh, I didn't look that hard. <laughs> yeah. So matches are still actually called lucifers in Dutch. So that persisted even to today in Holland. But they were also quickly replaced after 1830 by matches made according to the process devised by Charles Sauria of France, who substituted white phosphorus for the antimony sulfide. And these new phosphorus matches had to be kept in airtight metal boxes because otherwise they would spontaneously ignite and went by the name of Locofoco in the United States. Wait, this was an improvement? 
Yes. Well, they didn't throw sparks for quite some distance. They were easier to light, weren't explosive. Just couldn't be exposed to air. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to just go quick through some future improvements. There was William Ashgard, who replaced the sulfur with beeswax, which made it less pungent, which was then replaced by paraffin by Charles W. Smith, resulting in what were called parlor matches. From 1870, the end of the splint was fireproof by impregnation with fire retardant chemicals such as alum, sodium silicate, and other salts, and resulted in what was commonly called a drunkard's match, which prevented the accidental burning of the user's fingers. Huh. That seems like a change we can get behind. That's a good one. There were other advances that were made. Sometimes matches were made from blocks of wood with cuts separating the splints, believing their bases attached. Others were made in the form of thin combs where you snapped off one of the teeth and then struck it. There was also a noiseless match invented in 1836 by a Hungarian inventor, Janos Irinyi, so that the matches wouldn't make such a loud sound. To facilitate arson? Maybe. <laughs> I imagine it was just to, for a polite lighting, so nobody would know you were lighting up a cigar, so you wouldn't have to share. A little... Where's that cloud of smoke coming from? Oh, I don't know. The curtain? I don't think so. We would have heard the match. Where'd you get that cigar, sir? I was already lit. <laughs> it's been lit this entire time. A passing street rascal placed it in my lips and told me to smoke up, Grandad. So I did. He was quiet. He was a quiet boy. A real artful dodger. Thinks he has typhoid. Poor bastard. <laughs> so, up to now we've been hearing about matches and improvement of matches. And there are still some improvements to come. A big one, in fact, was the replacement of white phosphorus in matches. Remember how I said there was some bad stuff coming up? Yep. Here it comes. Some Okay, yeah. <laughs> what? Isn't, like, white phosphorus, like, isn't that banned and, like, modern, like, by the Geneva Convention as, like, a... By the Bern Treaty from Bern, Switzerland, but also hilariously named Bern. Yes. And that is part of the history of matches, too. And here's why. So in 1888, London Match Girls led a strike campaigning against the use of white phosphorus in matchmaking because it med led to bone disorders such as Fossy Jaw. Now, hey, doesn't Fossy Jaw sound like a fun, cool... Like a 50s dance? Yeah. Oh. Everyone do the Fossy Jaw. Oh, this is gonna be it's like gonna... the Radium Girls. It is. It's very bad, so I'm only going to touch on it lightly. So Fossy Jaw, which is formerly known as Phosphorus Necrosis of the Jaw, was something that happened when you work with white phosphorus without the proper safeguards. It's caused by the vapor of the white phosphorus, which destroys the bones of the jaw. Basically, the jaw gets slowly eaten away inside your mouth until it necrotizes and spreads to your organs. There are pictures of people with it, and they look awful. Don't go looking it up. It can also cause serious brain damage. And the fun note about it is it caused the effective bones to glow in the dark with a greenish-white color. So if your jaw starts to glow, that's how you know. Also, your jaw is exposed so someone can notice it's glowing. Ah, uh, no, it, it rots inside of your mouth, inside your, inside your head. You oh, so you can see it, see it through. through your skin? Yeah. Oh, that's gross and fascinating. It's really gross and fascinating and really horrible. It yeah. pretty much always killed people. So yeah, so all those people involved in the manufacture of the new phosphorus matches, all these new strike matches. Most of them got Fossy Jaw, uh, and there was enough white phosphorus in a single pack of matches to kill a person. There were a lot of deaths, accidental deaths, and suicides from eating the heads of matches. Oh. So, remember those drunkards who were chowing down on matches? Yep. 
It wasn't as fun as it sounded. And it didn't sound that fun. In my mind, it was like Pop Rocks. But this is much worse. This is, I mean, it's like more like Pop Rocks and Cola. Mm. Except slower. You don't explode. So not like Pop Rocks and Cola. <laughs> I was just waiting for that realization. <laughs> like, as you kind of, like, looked up, then looked down, <laughs> and then looked up again. Yeah, that's my that's my pattern. The old up, down, up. But yeah. Um, this... Did their protest work? Yes. Uh, the social activist Annie Besant published an article in her Halfpenny Weekly paper, The Link, on the 23rd of June, 1888, and a strike fund was set up, and some newspapers collected donations from readers. The women and girls of the strike also solicited contributions and struck outside of the factories. And this strike and the negative publicity led to changes being made to limit the health effects of the inhalation of white phosphorus. So it worked. Yay! And so... they've got great marketing on there to have a... Uh, match strike? Yeah. That's great. The match girl strike of 1888. Now match girl safe. No little match girls dying in the snow this year. So they uh, attempted to reduce the effects of white phosphorus on workers through inspections and regulations. They tried heating white phosphorus to 250 degrees Celsius, which makes it take on a red allotropic form, which doesn't fume in contact with air, so you don't get the fumes. First of all, it's not poisonous, so you can make a strike anywhere match with that. You can roll it in gum so it beads up, and you get a like a nice pebbled surface when it's easier to strike. So that's that's what we use now is this red phosphorus. So white phosphorus was phased out by various countries over a long course of time. Finland prohibited the use of in 1872, then Denmark in 1874, then France, then Switzerland, the Netherlands. The last country to modernize was China in 1925, and um. Like I said, the Bern Convention, which was reached at Bern, Switzerland, in September 1906, banned the use of white phosphorus in matches. That it was an international agreement in a delightfully appropriately named city, which I, I really hope that... Did on purpose. I really hope they did on purpose. They have to have. I mean, Switzerland is a pretty popular place for uh, having conventions, so if, if it's a coincidence, it's a beautiful one, but I really hope it was deliberate. There's a lot of cities... Maybe maybe just like some manufacturer of matches really didn't want to go, and he was like, I hope they burn instead of signing this treaty. And someone overheard him said, Oh, we should go to burn. It's really nice there. <laughs> no! Foiled again! And they get a nice vacation area after the negotiations. This is exactly what I didn't want. Oh, I'm going to go to bed now and let my glowing bones soothe me to sleep. Ah, it's a nightlight from inside me. No monsters here. Jack, you look so sad. I am so sad. It's a really sad story. The only monster under the bed is me. Wanting them to not reach this agreement. I hide under the bed so no one can see my glowing bones. So the dangers of white phosphorus in the manufacture of matches led to the development of the hygienic or safety match. Like I said, used red phosphorus so that it didn't fume. And actually, the safety match isn't called the safety match because it's harder to strike, though it is a little harder to strike. It's called that because it doesn't use white phosphorus and so can't kill you by ingestion. Oh. Yeah. That's a fun fact. It is a fun fact. Uh, the industrial process for its development was uh, made in, like, 1851... And then very slowly adopted because it was cheaper to use white phosphorus. But the development of a specialized matchbook with both matches and a striking service was in the late 1890s by the Diamond Match Company, which has been manufacturing them pretty much ever since. Yeah, now, see, the, I've heard of that one. Mm -hmm, the patent has long since run out, so everyone can make their own matches. There have been a few virtual monopolies by some Swedish companies, Jönköping, 
which had a long a long held monopoly because they just were able to make matches the most cheaply. There was a British manufacturer, Bryant and May, that tried to buy the patent away from them but was unable to do. Uh, all sorts of things. But, you know, now we've got these much safer matches worldwide that we rarely use because we now have lighters. So, yeah, in a nutshell, that's that's the story of matches. More depth to be gone into with, like, people's various trials and tribulations, but I saw a book of matches the other day and I was like, I wonder how long it took to get these this good. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good thought. Yeah. I wish I'd been able to do more research on this because there's a lot of really interesting stories and a lot of interesting people in this. Mm-hmm. It's been been a busy couple weeks. I'm curious um, about what might have happened between that professor and the student who then basically stole his his match formulations. Flunked him. Definitely flunked him, right? Yeah. A big old flunkaroo. I wonder if it even happened. Oh, my student taking my formulas, using it as your own. Sleep well in that dormitory tonight. It would be a shame were to be turned into a skeleton by magic. Yeah, I don't know. My professor seems pretty chill. He keeps talking about his weird fantasy novel he's been writing about people getting turned into skeletons by magic. I don't know. I think he wants notes or something, but I'm not really, I don't know. I'm a chemistry student. I'm really an English major, so I don't know. I feel like, I feel like it's kind of intruding, but like I want to, you know, I feel like I really did it wrong by stealing his match recipe. And the whole dorm was gone, except for the carpets. Oh, my asbestos carpets! They came through! <laughs> Luckily, I was taking a big old nap rolled up in one asbestos carpet on top of another asbestos carpet. So, you know, no harm, no foul, I guess. Anyway, who wants to smoke a duber? I've got these new matches. <laughs> what What would you name a match? Because I love all these names of various matches. They're all so good. They're all really good. I would call them Mini Olympics. A little tiny, like make them look like a little tiny Olympic torch, and you teeny torch, and have a little runner on the side. Make sure to campaign to pass a law that says you can't use a match until you've run five feet with it, because then it has to be a little mini Olympic torch. That's a great idea. I or I would make the ones that will explode if exposed to air, and like you have to run to get enough air, like create enough friction with the air around you to light it, and it just bursts into flame and a beautiful bobble of burning. Landed that one, nailed that one. <laughs> I'd probably go with something along the lines of, like, fairy stick. Because I think it conveys some of the danger, too, where if you follow the light, you'll probably just disappear. Uh, Will-o'-the-wisp, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you never want to get too close to the fair folk. That's what I've noticed from every story. Yeah. Yeah, they're terrible. Mm-hmm. Steal your way under the hill, and you come back, you turn to dust. Yeah. yeah and I like I like the uh, the menace of that. That sounds fun. Kids love them, fairy sticks. But, you know, they don't know the deep-down menace, and that's a good way for them to learn. Yeah. Or Sparkler. Sparkler's already taken. You're going to get sued. But I assume we're making these in the past. It'll be before Sparklers. Sparkler isn't even a brand name. Okay, so you'll 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 cut out Sparklers, is what I'm hearing. Sparklers will you still exist. They'll just be named something else. We named Matches. But that's the generic term. That's not even a brand. They'll be named Vamoose Sticks. I don't get it, but okay. I don't know either. I just was looking for something to say. We named uh, Big Sparky Boys. It doesn't quite have the ring of a Lucifer stick. Outcomine Phoenix Tales. That's a good one. I still like Big Sparky Boys. <laughs> Big Sparky Boys. Big Sparky Boys and Phoenix Tales. And they'd be functionally identical, but with very different packaging. Like, it would just be this, like, Big Sparky Boys. I'm just imagining a porcupine with all his, like, quills. <laughs> like, have little fire tips on oh, it. That's, that's so very good. 
I'm a big sparky boy and I'm here to help you light your earth fire. I just walk into the old idiot fireplace and I curl up underneath all the wood and it all catches fire. I'm a big sparky boy, my name's Eustace, I'll be here and uh, let me know if you need anything from me. Alright, I'll be watching you from inside the fire. <laughs> hey, I'm watching you smooch. It's rom- I'm romantic, but I know I'm still here. <laughs> I'm always watching. I'm, a, I'm always watching. That's our motto. Big Sparky Boys. Eustace is always watching. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Oh, look at the little ones with their marshmallows. They don't know what you've been doing. Now this is getting really gross. I hate this now. <laughs> Where's the Phoenix Tales for the people who are tired of being watched by Eustace, the perverted fiery porcupine? <laughs> He really did. <laughs> he did transform quite a bit from an adorable little mascot to this, like, creepy in your house just watching you at all times, porcupine. I'm on fire. Can't put me out. Put out the fire. I've still got spikes. Hey, there's no escaping, Eustace. <laughs> Watch you sleep. It's almost like a horror movie. They try to get like out of that. It's like the doorknob's too hot. Ah! And he's on the other side, just with his quills against the doorknob. Like he's got a hole in the door so he can still watch. HGHD. I've got my periscope here. I'm looking over the door. I made it out of the things I've stolen from your house: mirrors and tubes and gewgaws and bobbles and what's it's. Have you seen my little pork pie cap? I like it so I can wear it. <laughs> like to wear it so I can watch better. She'll be eyes from me own flames, don't I? Otherwise the contrast's too bright. <laughs> Buy me a television. Buy me a television so I can watch my stories. It's the only way to escape the curse of Eustace. Oh no, water! My only weakness. Porcupines can't swim. Was his weakness a curse that he placed upon himself? The weakness was water. Why? Oh my god, just like signs. Yep. Yep, just like signs. I got the idea from signs. The movie signs. Oh, that would be that would make signs so much cuter if like Mel Gibson was just walking around seeing little tiny porcupines with little pork pie hats <laughs> running through his corn maze. Close up on Mel Gibson, he turns, he looks, gasp, what's that? Close up, extreme close up on his eyes, they widen, his eyebrows go up, and we see running through the corn like just little shadows, like pep 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 pep, tiny little feet, pep 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 pep, until one emerges and you see, whoosh, and you see a pork pie hat glimpsed and then gone, and he's like. <gasps> Ah, ah, porkies, porkies! He starts running, and pep, pep, and they come, start coming out of the corn. And you just see these little snouts emerge <laughs> as they weave through the corn on their little feet. I haven't seen signs, so I'm just superimposing the patriot onto this. <laughs> and these porcupines are gonna get killed. Aren't the porcupines, the hated British in this one, yes, because of the British accent of Eustace. Mel Gibson, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you and your beaver puppet you talked to in that one movie. The beaver. <laughs> Should have been a porcupine. I don't know that movie. Yeah, Mel Gibson talk, talks to a beaver puppet. And I threw a beaver puppet in it. He's a, he's a man with some issues. I, I quite liked it, except, you know, should have yeah. been a porcupine. So do either of you like movies? Yeah. No. Well, 
Well, said, yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Well, I'll be on my way. I'm always watching, remember? Bye. I installed a camera. <laughs> You'll never find it. Pap, 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 pap. <laughs> so your typhoid Mary is kind of like an awful little porcupine. She sounds super lighthearted. Mm-hmm. Tell us all about Typhoid Mary. Sure. Um, so her name is actually Mary Mallon. She was born in Ireland in 1869, and she immigrated to the United States around 1883-84. As most of you probably know, she was the first person in the United States identified as an asymptomatic carrier of the pathogen associated with typhoid fever. Cool. Yeah. So she was uh, like a, a carrier rat or a carrier porcupine. Unaffected by the disease, but still able to infect others. True. Um, and typhoid does not affect any other animals besides humans. Yeah. Just a fun fact. Oh, that is fun. Fun fact about typhoid. Typhoid fever. Typhoid fever, not typhoid Mary. Because typhoid Mary could like pick up a porcupine, for example, and carry it around. She could. Yeah. She definitely could. So when she got to the United States, she was living around New York City. And she worked as a domestic servant, basically. And she ended up becoming a cook. And she was, by all accounts, a very good cook. She worked for a lot of um, wealthy families. So she worked for wealthy families between about 1900 and 1907. Except the people in the households that she worked for always seemed to start getting typhoid fever. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, it was just a bit of a, a trend that happened in all the places she worked. So in 1906, she was working for the Warren family. In Oyster Bay. It was like a very affluent vacation spot. And two weeks after they got to Oyster Bay, I, I heard a couple different numbers, but there were 11 people in the household total, and either six or ten of them got typhoid fever. That's a big gap. Yes. Well, were four I... of them, like, just thrown out <laughs> of history? I wonder if they, like, maybe... So Typhoid Mary has, like, a humongous kind of urban legend attached to her. Um, a lot of the stuff, like the numbers of people who she's considered or to have infected are like very blown up. Didn't she like just keep getting jobs as a cook? Yep. So I think 10 might be because people inflate the numbers. Mm -hmm. So essentially this outbreak in Oyster Bay was kind of the tipping point of her being discovered as an asymptomatic carrier for typhoid fever. The landlord who owned the place that the wealthy family was renting was very worried that no one would rent his home again after um, this outbreak happened. So he hired himself basically a private eye of diseases, a Mr. George Soper. A uh, pink eye. Yes. <laughs> George Soper to investigate it. So George Soper actually ended up publishing the results of his inspection in um, a 1907 issue of JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Oh, I thought it was Journal of American Jam. Nope. No. No, that's the Cook's one. Oh, yeah. So they wouldn't... Maybe Mary could have put an article in there. Mm -hmm. But, um... Guess what? Ten flavors of jam give people typhoid fever. Raspberry. Yes. Boysenberry. Blackberry. Pumpkin. Really? So Mary was a really, really good cook, and her specialty was desserts. And her biggest specialty was peach ice cream, Ooh. which um, is not cooked. Oh. So that's definitely how a lot of people got typhoid. Mm -hmm. So George Sofer is doing his investigation, and he's checking out the oysters in Oyster Bay to see if maybe low-quality seafood caused this outbreak. 
I'd like to imagine him showing up to some sea cave, like, just, like, to talk to the oysters. <laughs> just start picking up shells, like, what do you know? Where where were your friends? Are they sick? The oysters just keep characteristically tight-mouthed. Right. <laughs> you want to play hardball, huh? And he, like, takes out a starfish and puts it next to him. <laughs> he opens her mouth and forces in a bunch of sand. See how you like that sand? You're not making this into pearls. So what he really did was he he asked all the people who had typhoid fever what they had eaten, and not all of them had eaten the oysters. So that's how he concluded that it wasn't the oysters. And then immediately went and had himself a big oyster lunch. (laughs) (laughs) You earned this. (laughs) He's probably like, well, I guess I didn't need to confiscate all these oysters. Or did I? Gulp, 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 gulp. (laughs) He sets up an oyster slide right into his mouth. That's disgusting. Yes. Corruption is disgusting, Jackie. (laughs) So Mr. Soper suspects that it's the cook that has helped spread typhoid to all these people. So he approaches Mary. She had left the employ of this this family by then. And naturally, he comes up to her and is like, comes into her home and asks for a stool and urine sample. And this man is just a stranger. A stranger. (laughs) Just a stranger. And she happily complies. No. <laughs> no, no, no. So not only is he a stranger, he is not even with the health department. Mm-hmm. He's been hired by Mr. Warren, the guy who owned the vacation property. Mm-hmm. So naturally, she um, starts to be very threatening to him and pulls out one of those real big forks and basically shoes him out the door. Oh, I love this so much. Well, he did come into her home yeah i don't think he forced his way in i think he like introduced himself or whatever and she let him in and then he was like hey let me get some poop and she said get out hello miss i'd like some of your poop and pee (laughs) now i know what you're thinking this man's a pervert that's simply not true see i've been eating a large number of oysters today and oh what's that for get it hey whoa 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 So, um, Mr. Soper tried to explain, so he tried to explain to her the concept of being a carrier for a disease, and she was having none of it. It's just a plan to steal me poop and pee. <laughs> well, so, she thought she was just being harassed, because she had never had typhoid herself. Or if she did, it was such a mild version that she didn't even realize she had it. Or, I mean, she must have had it if she was a carrier. But it wasn't a severe enough case that she considered that she had been sick from it. So she just thought this guy was spouting nonsense. And some of the other typhoid cases that had afflicted places where she had worked, they had deter- authorities had determined that it was from contaminated water. Whether that water became contaminated by her, I don't know. Um, but there were alternate explanations for some of the typhoid outbreaks that that she had been connected to. So she basically just did not believe this guy that um, that she was part of it at all. So, Dr. Soper, I don't know if he was a doctor. He probably was. He claimed to be. (laughs) So he gets the help of the health department. He basically petitions them and says, this lady is, the community is not safe because this woman is out there infecting people. Um, And she won't give me any of her poop and pee. Yeah. Oh, so he actually pieced together from her employment history that she got that he got from the employment agency he kind of like wrote out this whole report that connected to her and that's what got published in JAMA okay i was i'm really hoping it was like a big like corkboard and red string type conspiracy 
And he was just going, and hey, over here, she worked over here. Look at how many people did that over here. And over here, you see this? See this string right here? See that string right here? Peaches. It's all peaches. I'm just, I had a dumb thought, a dumb vision of like him like in this dark basement putting it all together and goes, and then he hears a voice behind him. Well, now we can't just blame the peaches. And he looks behind him. There's just a giant peach in the doorway. It's like slowly trying to roll in. My name is James, and I'm a giant peach. I didn't kill that boy's family. It was a giant storm. Rhinoceros has killed that boy's family. Roald Dahl's going to write all about it. Thump. Too bad you won't be around to see it. Thump. Now, if you keep blaming peaches, thump, people are going to stop beating peaches, thump, and then, where will the peaches be, thump? I'm almost to the bottom of these stairs, I'm rolling slowly. <laughs> <laughs> thump, 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 oh, I'm all bruised. What What are you going to do to me? Well, um, I hadn't thought it, I used up all my momentum getting down these stairs, so... I figured I'd show up here during a lightning storm and spook you a little bit. I'm a giant talking peach, isn't that spooky? I got big old spiders and bugs living inside me. I, I'm going to just walk up the stairs and leave you down here to rot. No! Don't go. I'm lonely. I'm full of bugs. I'm scared. I hear them talking sometimes about me. Okay, I'm I'm going to go. Creak. <laughs> well, giant peach, you certainly have found yourself in a giant pickle. Guess I'll just sit here and wait to be devoured by insects inside me. So the New York City Health Department. <laughs> so um, the New York City Health Department decides that this may require a woman's touch. So they send Josephine Baker, Doctor Josephine Baker, to go talk to Mary Mallon. It doesn't work. Again, she whips out her fork and is like, "Leave, get out of here." So you cannot page. poop all day long, <laughs> Mary. We're going to get your poop eventually, Mary. <laughs> can't just keep hiding it in that little box inside your house. So a man dressed up as a toilet went into Mary's house, but she found him out and chased him out with a fork. All right, so Josephine Baker comes back <laughs> for a second visit along with, like, five police officers. Mary jumps out of a window <laughs> to escape. Because from her perspective, she's perfectly healthy, and the authorities are just trying to pin something on her so she's literally trying to escape so she runs out the window hides in an alley actually she hid in an outhouse which i thought was pretty funny that's pretty good <laughs> you'll never find my poop and pee amongst all of this poop and pee <laughs> oh well <laughs> so they're not coming for her poop and pee at this point they think she's uncooperative and they're taking her um which is really messed up so that that's my main thesis for this entire thing really messed up so they, after three hours, they find her in that house. Incredibly constipated. <laughs> um, and they bring her to prison um, where she's forced to give them urine and stool samples. And they come back positive. And basically they say, we can take out your gallbladder and let you free. Because um, they thought that the disease was harbored in the gallbladder. From what I can tell is supposedly true. I, I don't I don't know that much. But again, she thinks that these people are just out to get her, so she's not going to go under the knife for anything. So she refuses. And in 1907, she was put in isolation 
in a clinic on the North Brother Island in the Bronx. Um, she was eventually given her own cottage, and she was held there for three years against her will in isolation with only a dog as her company. And all the peaches she could eat. That no, that's really fucked up, though. It is. Was it her dog or was it a dog? I think it's just a dog. The sources that I read said it was a fox terrier, but it didn't give any information beyond that. So basically, this poor woman who didn't understand the concept of a disease carrier was forced to live alone on an island for three years. Uh, And this was a huge news story as well. And in 1909, um, she got a lawyer to make a writ of habeas corpus, um, which is basically something you make when when you think someone's being um, held against their will. Held against their will. And it was denied. So she died there. Not this time. Go on. <laughs> She's still alive today. <laughs> She's still there today and incredibly contagious. They say if you listen to the wind, you can hear her screams. So there was a lot of um, speculation about where she got the money to get this lawyer. The prevailing theory is that William Randall Hearst, a newspaper man, paid her legal fees to sell newspapers. Sounds like a newspaper man. Yeah. Starting wars, paying legal fees. It's really, you know, kind of evens out in the end. It's just, this whole thing is crazy. This whole thing is just insane. So she was held in isolation for three years until 1910 when there was a new health commissioner, Eugene H. Porter, um, said that she could be freed if she stopped working as a cook and took reasonable steps to prevent um, transmission. So she accepted and she became a laundress, which if you're familiar with the economy of the time, you don't make a lot of money as a laundress. You make a lot more money as a cook for wealthy people. So basically her life was just terrible. She had a hard time making a living with such a new lower standing with her job. So ultimately, she changed her name to Mary Brown and became a cook again. Mary, no. This whole time she doesn't she also doesn't believe yeah. that she's a carrier for this disease cuz she's never never seen any evidence. She's never seen evidence that she's been sick. As far as she knows, just a bunch of perverts just locked her up cuz she wouldn't give them her, her poop and pee. Yeah, just yeah. like a big coincidence that she's the scapegoat for. <laughs> so she continued to um infect people for that time. So it's 1915 now. It's five years since she's been released from her um, isolation. And there's a major outbreak at Sloan Hospital for Women, which is the place that she was now working. Um, and it infected 25 people, two of whom died. Um, and by the time the outbreak was over, she had already left that position. Um, but then she got arrested by the police based on the description. Um, they basically figured out that Mary Brown was Mary Mallon. Mm-hmm. And in March 1915, she was quarantined again. And that's where she stayed until she died 23 years later. Jack, your stare right now is... I'm so mad. Yeah, no. There should have been other ways to do this. So carriers were not super uncommon. There were 50 known carriers in the same time period, but she was the only one forced into isolation and quarantine. How were the other carriers treated? They were given warnings. They were told similar things of try not to infect people. One person was Alphonse Cottles. He was an Italian immigrant. He was a baker and a restaurant owner. And he, similar to Mary, was prohibited from preparing poo. Preparing poo. You can't use the bathroom anymore, Alphonse. 
You're just going to have to hold it in. Hold it, Alfonso. Alfonso used to be so skinny, but he's put on a lot of weight recently. And he seems so angry all all the time. So this one in particular bothered me because he also worked in food service, but was not... Give me a second. (laughs) He also worked in poop service. (laughs) (laughs) Alfonso, you've done it again. So Alfonso owned a bakery and a restaurant, and he was also given the same, like, don't prepare the food kind of warning. And he, surprise, surprise, like Mary, didn't listen because, you know, this is his livelihood. And he wasn't arrested. Or he was arrested, but nothing happened after that. He wasn't isolated. He wasn't put into quarantine. And one of the texts that I read said that it was because if they had quarantined him, his whole family would have suffered. Which is, like, the most ridiculous thing. Yeah, that's... Oh, no, this poor man. He's killing people, but his family can't suffer. Mm -hmm. So I didn't find any um, numbers... I didn't find any numbers on Alphonse, but there was a guy named Typhoid John who was a guide, a mountain guide, and he also was a carrier. He led to 36 36 cases and two deaths, Um, and there was another person named Tony LaBella who in 1922 had caused 100 cases of typhoid fever and five deaths, while Mary, what were her stats? She was tied to 30 cases and three deaths. Mary, 30 cases, three deaths. Tony LaBella, a hundred cases, five deaths, and nothing happened to him. Like, this is just insane. So all the other people on this list are dudes, is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah, well, I wonder, yeah. huh. Hmm. What's happening What's here? happening Data here? Points. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, those were the only other three that I read about. They're, I didn't see the names of other people, but there were supposedly 50 known asymptomatic carriers. At the time. And hers was a lot more high profile because of the manhunt that happened. And um, she was particularly combative with authority. The newspaper got involved. There was a lot of public animosity towards her. Because typhoid fever was like a really terrible thing. In 1906, there were 3,000 cases in New York with 600 deaths. So it was a big deal. And everything was blown up about her. Poor typhoid Mary. Yeah. But I will end this on a fun note. Is it her recipe for peaches ice cream? No. No. This um, this is totally unrelated to the story, but I found this out today. That the phrase, put a sock in it, is about lowering the volume on gramophones. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. would literally just put a sock in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I found that interesting. Yeah. My dad has an old gramophone he used to play, and that was what he would do. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Dad. <laughs> Hi, Mr. Max. It's okay. I'm Mr. Max. My dad is Mr. Kreisky. Noel, you do know my last name, right? He's shaking his head. No, he's looking scared. He's looking angry. He's starting to cry. And while being forced to live in isolation, Mary had a stroke, and then was discovered, who knows when, afterwards by a delivery man. And then she spent the rest of her life in a hospital bed. Poor Mary. Yeah, she really got screwed over. And she really got boned. If someone had calmly and rationally explained carrier stuff to her. Like, give us your poop! Give us your poop and then your gallbladder. Give us your poop and your gallbladder. Like, uh, I wasn't there, so I don't know how they handled it, but... Poorly. Probably not well. No. Yeah. So if you had to have a companion animal in isolation, what would you choose? Dog's hard to pass up, but... 
Um, I would choose a horse, because then I can ride it away. I've solved your puzzle. It was a really small island. I'd choose a whale, so I can ride it away. You'd probably kill that whale. Okay, 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 okay. Give me a second. Parrot. So you can ride it away. Or I could talk to you. Not really. You could hear another voice. Ark? I'm no. No, I'm no. No, I'm no. No, I'm no. Which one's the real one? <laughs> what could get me off an island? Pet bridge. <laughs> I would like many pet trees and a pet axe. Pet giraffe. Pet nails. Pet book about carpentry. <laughs> pet pirate ship. Pet, pet cannon. Pet pirate. Pet pet pirate. Yar. <laughs> I was meant to be on the open sea. <laughs> Why did you have me neutered? <laughs> There's no other pirate here for me to mate with. Arr, and if I, a pirate, were to meet with a human, it'd be a genetically inviable offspring. Always wanting to get to the sea, but running around on half-flesh, half-wooden peg legs. Would it be a pieman or a curate? Who knows? Arr, arr, arr. arr. All of the great pirate geneticists are gone. <laughs> Buried with them all their pirate geneticist knowledge. And their pundit anchors. Me, I'm only a lowly pirate chemist. I've been working on a pirate match. <laughs> you strike it against a parrot's beak. It's a pyro match. <laughs> That'd be a good pun there, Mary. <laughs> Thank you. What would you have, uh, Jackie? Ah, probably also dog, but I would also want a series of costumes to dress the dog up in. Oh, yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you could have a little fun, fun fancy ideas and, and uh, little plays you put them on. Yeah, I put wizard hats on my dog sometimes, and crowns, Sherlock Holmes caps. I got a lot of hats for my dog. We have a series of hats for yeah. my cat, too. But cat she, hats? Um... She hates them? Yeah. He hates them, too. My dog hates the hats, but he, he tolerates them. Oh, she's squirmy. She doesn't really tolerate them. He just stands there until I take it off again. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. She's given up. Well, our cat displays a will to live oh, and yeah. her own agency. Agency. Yeah, he's not great on agency. <laughs> we took him to the dentist the other day and he got, had to be, they put him in under anesthetic to brush his teeth because he thought he had to have a cavity and a tooth pulled. He didn't have to have a tooth pulled, but he was all sleepy the whole rest of the day. Oh, that's so we cute. took him a walk. He just walked really slowly and stopped and like looked at stuff. <laughs> it was great. That sounds adorable. It was very cute. Um, well, that's going to do it for us uh, this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you listen to Podimacasts. Maybe uh, send us an, a letter on the emails at itsanacronismo@gmail.com or check us out on Twitter at, at @anacpodcast. That's A N A C podcast. Yeah, we love to hear from you. We love to uh, to see you. Send us stories about dogs that we can feature for our historical dog segment. We'd love to hear them, and I'm sure you have them. So thanks so much for listening. Uh, I'm Max. I'm Noel. And I'm Jackie. And this has been Anachronismo. What do I miss? No, I'm just getting all saw everything. So, uh... Are we some of your stories? What? Are we your stories? Yeah, you're all my stories. Yeah! <laughs>
We have a consistent listener. 